iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. How are we doing tonight? Talk to these guys over here. How are you guys doing tonight? You excited? I got a lot of woos on this side. I said, are you guys ready to kick it off over here on the left? There we go. Now it's evened out. You don't want to have a bad woo ratio. It's not good. All right, sweet. So with that, we'd like to invite you guys to enjoy the trailer for Nanny McPhee Returns. Once upon a time is how these stories usually begin. However, this particular tale begins with... Oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Meet the brown children. They're motherless. Call him. Call them. They're ruthless. <laughs> and for the 17th time, they're nannyless. We got rid of her in three days, eight hours, and 47 minutes. That's the final straw. There is only one solution for children like these. And it will not be pretty. Good evening. I am Nanny McPhee. We got rid of the last 17 nannies. We're getting rid of this one, too. Mm. The nanny is a witch. <laughs> Do they go to bed when they're told? Uh... Do they say please? In what context? Please make your acquaintance. I'm Oglington Fartworthy. <laughs> She's coming! <laughs> Dear me, measle medicine. It's moving! Open wide. But now, their evil Aunt Adelaide... Your children are out of control. I shall relieve you of what is taking charge. No! The house will be taken. Some of you will be put into the workhouse. Some will be put into the care of others. It's our mother's rattle. Give it back. I'm your mother now. And their only hope... Nanny McPhee, we need you. ...is to say the magic word. Please. May I be of assistance? From Universal Pictures. Help us, Nanny McPhee. Tell us what to do. Think. You are very clever. ...comes a new kind of fairy tale. <laughs> that was my idea. I mean, my fault. About an ordinary family. You cannot take any of my children away from me. In need of a little magic. <laughs> Emma Thompson. Colin Firth. Nanny McPhee. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Susanna White, Emma Thompson, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and this evening's guest moderator, Donna Friedkin of USA Today. Nice mic. Hello, ladies. Hello. Long time Hello. no see. <laughs> Emma, I have to ask, start by asking you the first question. You wrote the movie, you produced it, you star in it, you did craft services for it. How did this whole, the second installment come about for you? Um, okay, well, um, I didn't really produce it. They just put that on when they do a second one, just in case you decide to go away oh. and not do any more. So don't, you know, I, but I did write it and was in it and all of that. Um, and I, uh, I, I suppose what happened was, I thought, I think 
I could do a Clint Eastwood with this or a James Bond. I mean, how many movies do you know about where women can come back and do the same role again? Just think about it. There aren't many. So I thought, oh, I might, I might be able to do another story because it's all about the, the resolution of conflict, which is what most story is about. And like, as you know, there are only about seven stories and there's Boy Meets Girl and there's, you know, and this one is a stranger rides into town. That's what it is. So it's a Western. So really, because I was, grow I, I was brought up on Westerns, I thought, this is my Western, hence the boots. <laughs> so it, it, is, it's, it is sort of because you can tell different kinds of stories in different kinds of ways, but using this very strange character who I think is interesting and anarchic and subversive. And how did Maggie come to do this, Miss Maggie? How did I come to do yes. it? Um, well, Apart from being paid. <laughs> to show up. Which is obviously very important. Yeah, We're I, women, I, I, we I need to paid. earn our living. <laughs> um, well, let's see. Emma and I met on Stranger Than Fiction, and um, I think we liked each other a lot. And uh, then Peter was shooting an education in London, and... Um, I was there kind of hanging out with my 14-month-old and a little lonely and cold. It was March in London, and Emma invited us to Sunday lunch. And when I left, she... Um, Which was in July, and it was still cold. <laughs> it was, she said, if she gave me the script, and she said, I want Mrs. Green to look exactly like how you look right now. <laughs> Which I actually, now looking back on it, I think maybe was not a compliment. <laughs> And how did you guys, uh, how, Emma, actually, how did you find Susanna? Well, Susanna, who had been, you know, we, we were very lucky to get Susanna because she was just off mm -hmm. being the best director ever since Life's Bread, doing Generation Kill and Bleak House and, um, uh, yes. They're good ones to yes, talk exactly, about. But, ones. Yes, exactly. Those were the ones that we were... Um, well, hang on, wait a minute. Jane, Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre. And um, so we looked at all of this and we thought, well, she won't want, you know, she, she, she'll be going to do something else. But Susanna liked the script and she understood about Mrs. Green because Susanna is a director of films and she has two children. So you should... I have to say, the day I was sent the script, I was out in Africa. I'd been filming the American invasion of Iraq and it was the moment that the US Marines crossed the border into Iraq and I came in and I'd been in a dust storm and I remember vividly washing all the sand off me and there was a big brown envelope and I opened it and um, was completely transported into this world of what felt like a very classic film and, and of course immediately I connected with Mrs Green who is a working mum desperately trying mm -hmm. to hold it all together and uh, badly needing help so there was no question for me I wanted to do it. And what was your vision for the movie? Well, I think it's always a challenge making a sequel because you want it to be the same but mm -hmm. to be different. And um, It's I, not a sequel. It's, a, it's its own special thing, Emma. Well, no, it's not that. It's just a sequel is when you take, you know, the same story and do something the same with it. It's got... It, cause it, because it's set 100 years later, I always say, well, it's just a new... Which is why the, the sort of James Bond thing is good, is that, you know, especially I don't want kids to expect the same characters because they're not going to get the same characters. The only character who's the same is Nanny McPhee. 
and that's what's what's helpful it's about it. It's an icon it. moving on. It, it, it's what it's an icon. She's an icon, isn't she? Well, I don't know whether she's an icon yet. She might become an icon, obviously later. Although she does look a lot like a lot like of those Russian icons, um, because they all did they all did have warts and beards, I think. Um, but she's, you know, it's. The, the important thing was you were you were directing a whole new story. It wasn't like you were coming no. into some situation that was the story. same. That, that's what mm-hmm. I loved about it. It's a real weepy. I think takes you on a big, a big journey. And also, it it's much more than just a kids' film. I think there's something for everyone in it. Um, you know, it's as much for the parents as it's for the children. And those I felt those films are very rare to find. You don't get those scripts very often where they take the whole family seriously and something mm-hmm. you can really experience as a family because I think there's a difference between those films that you dutifully take your children to as a parent and ones that the whole family mm-hmm. really enjoy the experience together. Most kids' movies I go to where I take something else to do. <laughs> you know, like knitting or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know we touched on this a little bit in this morning. Um, can you guys talk about how contemporary the character is even though technically this is a period movie? I'd like to talk about that. <laughs> I, well, the th- I do think that, well, in terms of Mrs. Green, and, and you know, you'll have to speak to Nanny McPhee, but in terms of Mrs. Green, I love that she is not doing well. You know, she's really having a really hard time. She's, she's flailing and she's failing a lot of the time, and yet she's still a heroine and she still is a good mother. And I think it's pretty new, the idea that you can be a a working mother and not do a great job all the time because as far as I can tell that's the reality of things you know that it's impossible to be a brilliant mother all the time even if you're not working and then if you are working I can't even begin to imagine how you could do that so to have a compassionate woman who's struggling and trying to do the best she can and has an open heart and listens to her children and also really makes a lot of mistakes I just think is is unusual and new and I don't think five years ago we would have seen somebody like that in a movie as for Nanny McPhee, I, I, what I like about her is that um, she's, well, mysterious and witty and all of that, but she's also quite subversive in the sense that if you look at the two films, that naughtiness is not because there's anything wrong with those kids, it's because they're protesting. All, naughty, all, all naughtiness is, in fact, generally speaking, about protest. And that that protest should be listened to and taken seriously. And I think what's great about her is that's what she does. She listens and sees, and she plays tricks, and she's mischievous. You know, so you get those lessons, but they're not... Some of them are slightly ironic, you know. To share nicely in this movie means they end up sharing with a goat, an elephant, and a cow. (laughs) Which is, you know, not... It's it's odd. She's odd. And um, I, I like that a lot, and I think it is... It's very different to what we've seen before. That's why I'm interested in exploring the character further, you know, in, in, it, because it, it gives you an enormous um, palette, actually, for storytelling. Well, how did you guys, like with these five kids, the family dynamic comes across as so natural and real. How much rehearsal did you have? Did you have any rehearsal or did you just jump, jump into it? We had quite a lot of rehearsal, didn't yeah. we? Especially, I think, because some of it was technically very mm-hmm. complicated. There's a scene where the children, Nanny McPhee's magic turns the children who've been hitting each other, she turns their violence on themselves. So we did a lot of work technically rehearsing that. But also just, 
um, everybody really bonded as a big family, I think. It started to feel like a real family on the set. It's interesting it? on those sets, actually. Um, in America, it's different um, because in Britain, film crews are generally speaking quite kind of familial. But on Nanny McPhee sets, I've noticed that the the boundaries that normally exist between departments, like the electricians and costume and things like that, start to break down because it starts to become a family and people find the people they want to help or look after and it everything breaks down. So all those boundaries that are normally there become very porous. And, um, you know, when Maggie left, having been with the children for four months, they wept because she had mothered them so effectively. You know, I don't think their mothers were terribly pleased, but, God, you can't get it all right, can you? Blimey. Well, we rehearsed so much on this movie, actually. We started rehearsing. I got married, went on a honeymoon, and came back, and we were still rehearsing. <laughs> but the also, same scene, I think. I think that, yes. I think that uh, that thing about the boundaries breaking down has a lot to do with Emma, because the way that Emma... You know, who, and I think you guys shared the leadership, and the leadership, you know, it's always with a lot of people, but Emma, as this sort of um, writer and center of playing Nanny McPhee, I think, you know, you know every single person's name and their children's names and their wife's names, and you break that boundary down. Is that appallingly ingratiating, actually, really? Hello, everyone. That was a joke. But you're taking me terribly seriously. Is that because we're in the Apple Store or something? Anyway. Well, you're a two-time Oscar winner, so of course. Of course, oh, yes. <laughs> On your knees. <laughs> Maggie, your accent was flawless in the film. Can you talk about how long it took you to, to nail that and how you kept it up for the whole production? Um, well, I uh, wanted to sound like Susanna. Um, and I had That's a nice. really... Yeah, do you remember we kind of talked about it? Maybe I didn't tell you, but I, I liked your accent. And I think most American people would kind of like to talk English sometimes. So I, um, I just talked that way all the time when I was shooting. And um, partially because actually really it, there is that kind of embarrassing moment when you first, you know, sort of start talking English accent. And like all these English people are there, <laughs> you know, seems kind of weird. So I would just um, walk into the makeup trailer and start talking that way, like in the beginning of the day. And then everyone got used to it and, um, and I got used to it and, um, and it was... A, kind of a secret fun thing for me to talk that way and can you talk about your makeup in the film and how long it took you to get into character not long enough <laughs> I'm hoping when I'm older to be able to grow my own warts actually um, I uh, yeah it takes about an hour and a half two hours something like that it's not bad they paint it in, you know. They stick the, everything on and then paint it all into your face. And the interesting bit is the warts, which you've just seen close up, get stuck on. And then um, the makeup artist, Paula, she, she, she punches in two real hairs and then takes a very long, old, old um, curling tong thing that <laughs> smokes slightly at the end, which is coming right towards your face, like something you would get cauterized with up your nose and 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 just teases these hairs into curls and I'm there going don't burn me don't don't burn me please don't burn me and that it's quite medieval actually <laughs> you could extract a lot of information out of somebody with such a such a such a central theme of the movie really is this woman trying to balance everything and kind of not doing anything that well 
just trying, but maybe not succeeding. But you know, the one thing she does great all the way through is she love. Loves, yeah, she loves. She loves her kids. That's fine. But for each of you, are working moms, have you guys found kind of the magic balance, or is it still a work in progress? <laughs> she laughed her mirthless laugh. <laughs> There is no such thing as a magic balance, I think. I mean, I think as a director, you work incredibly mm-hmm. long hours. There's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. There's no, there's no two ways about it. But the way I've worked it out is I have gaps in between. So this summer, I'm spending time mm-hmm. with my children before I go on to the next film. Um, I think there are no easy answers to being a working mum. Yeah. But, you know, we're lucky. I feel so lucky to do what I do, to get to direct mm-hmm. movies and, and have a wonderful family. Um, well, I don't know. I remember this. I do think that that's the thing that's nice about our job is that we work really wild hours, you know, five in the morning until, Mm -hmm. you know, 830 at night and then an hour to get to set and an hour to get home and you can miss your kids completely um, for a couple of days at a time sometimes, but then you have big chunks of time off, which is a really nice thing about being an actor or director. But I do remember this one day when I was a new wife and I was a pretty new mother and I was, you know, in these scenes with the kids, some of them, you know, I'm the one who's talking the whole time and I'm the only grown-up and Emma and I would sometimes be, you know, down on our knees making fart noises when it was the kids' coverage, like when the camera was not, you know, most of the time. So it was hard work and I, one day just, it got to be too much for me and I kind of burst into tears in the makeup trailer, which is not something I usually do. I'm somebody who has to hold it together and act like I know everything and that's how anyway Emma was there and she said to me um you can't hold it all together you just can't there's no way you can't do it you're gonna drop the ball that's how it is that's how it goes but like I said before I think because it was a new thing for women to be able Mm -hmm. to work and have children you know it is a relatively new thing that it's 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 even newer that we're allowed to sit here and say we do make mistakes mm-hmm. it's hard to work and even the working itself makes me make mistakes and complicates things but that's the truth you know so yes it's good that and it's very nice to be sitting here all as you're soon to be a mother yes all as working mothers having made something that is not an easy thing mm-hmm. to do and i hope it inspires any young women in the audience to do the same emma do you do you carve out time every day to write when your daughter's in school, or do, is it just when I don't know when it hits you, so to speak? I don't know whether carve is quite the verb I would use. I think claw <laughs> and sort of <laughs> dribblingly flow. In, I, I mean, no, I, what I do is um, get up early and write early. Mm-hmm. School, yes, then write, 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 mornings, and then I stop. In the afternoon, I just, I'm useless anyway. So um, that's it. That's how it works for me. I mean, everyone's different. All writers are different. And I'm peculiar because I write long. You, that you two, you young people, do you, do you use computers? And when you write, do you always, when you do your homework, do you do it on computer? Oh, no, you don't. You write longhand. See, I write my scripts longhand. You do? Wow. Yeah, yeah, I write them all. And so, like, that script, which took me four years to, 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 to write properly, um, you know, the first few drafts are 120... Of, of old script. Mm-hmm. I write it on the back of old script. Does Lindsay read them longhand? No, I don't make her do that. That would be cruel. <laughs> no, I do... I'm finally, when I send them to um, our producer, Lindsay Duran, who is in here... Very strict. Who's very strict, but also the, uh, the greatest editor ever. 
I, mean, I always think there are so many books out there, so many films, and I read them and I look at them and I think, you know what? The greatest thing you can have as a writer is a really mm-hmm. good editor. You really need them. In the olden days, in the old publishing houses, there were these extraordinary editors. And it's the same with movies. You know, you could see a great movie and sometimes even a great play, and you can say, I certainly think, mm, that needed just someone who could do the, the cutting, cutting what you write, cutting what you film, is the magic. That is just the magic. Because Lindsay is really singular that way. It's like amazing. Something's the tiniest, she's the producer, the tiniest bit off, and she can sense it and she'll make you fix it. You know, I think that's an incredible thing about her. And as they say, God is in the detail, but simplicity also, which as you all know, is, is hellishly difficult. You want to make something simple, but which has um, a thickness, if you know what I mean. I, I mean, when I go to the movies, I want to see something that makes me feel different when I leave the cinema. I don't want to leave the cinema feeling the same way. I don't see the point of that. When I've finished my book at night, I don't want... That's the point of art, isn't it? Isn't it supposed to make you feel different? Otherwise, what's the point? And what's the point of spending millions and millions and millions of dollars? Because it's a waste of money. I would rather spend that money on education and hospitals. I would. You know, unless it's really worth making, don't make it. But, you know, the way you can make sure it's worth making is by doing the work. And all the work, I think... The big work on a, on a film is, is, is on the screenplay and making sure it really holds water so that it's like this iceberg underneath. You know, that, and it's what, it's what gives it weight and it will sit and it will really sit with people. And you know you, know, you can go and see movies and you think that it, we call them popcorn movies. And the great thing about this movie is that most of the time and a lot of the time, and this gives me such pleasure, and it, I know it gives you guys the same kind of pleasure, is that children forget to eat their popcorn <laughs> because they're watching a story. And they know that they just can't... This thing of feeding and watching at the same time just stops because they're engaging in something. They're thinking they've got to concentrate. And that's, you know, that's the point for me anyway and for us, I think. No, you're say. right. The screening I was at, there was uh, there were two couples there with a bunch of kids between them. And when they walked in, of course, being the hypocrite that I am, I was like, oh my god! And the kids did not make a single sound the entire time. So, yeah, they were asleep. They were not. They were sitting up. I can attest to that. <laughs> they were sitting right in front of me. All right, let's open it up to the audience. I'm sure you guys have some questions. No, not one question. Oh, there's lots of questions. You're like here on the end, and if you guys raise your hand, we'll come over to you with a microphone. So we have one right all the way over down. There's here. a gentleman here in the front in a red shirt. Oh no, you got one here. Okay. Hi, um, my question is for Emma. I know that you write a lot of screenplays with a feminist twist to it, and I've heard that you're writing My Fair Lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you gonna get your kind of sensibility into that story? Because well, I've changed the ending. Dead. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, when he says, can I have me slippers? I've changed that. Because it's a little bit of a defeat, isn't it? Let's face it. Um, Well, um, I suppose what I've done is, if if I've done it, I don't know whether I've done it, you never know. what, What I'm trying to do is indicate that even though her father sells her for five pounds to someone, um, which he does, you know, I mean, I'm sorry. Shaw knew what he was writing about, Bernard Shaw knew what he was writing about, and... Uh, you know, it's pretty rope. It's pretty brutal, and it's brutal what Higgins does. But I think that if you can make it clear that Higgins is 
deep obviously he's dysfunctional but that she comes in and excavate excavates him and creates a kind of hole in him that he then feels he cannot he doesn't know what to do with then you you see that these two people are made of the same kind of materials they're cut from oddly from the same cloth and so you get past the class structure that Shaw was working in, which was extremely severe and which he lived in. I mean, even though he fought against it, I mean, you know, he wrote The Intelligent Woman's Guide to Socialism and Capitalism, which I read as a young woman, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, no, that's right, that I should read something different for me, you know. But, but yeah, very interesting man. And I, and, I, and I went into all his letters to the actresses that he was in love with. And that was very interesting because, of course, he was a pedestal guy. He would see these women and project extraordinary things onto them and as soon as he came across them in person, couldn't deal with them, which is very like Higgins. So I've pinched a lot from him, from Shaw. And um, so I hope that what it is is perhaps emotionally a little more visceral, a little more real. Um, I can't turn it into a feminist tract. I'm awfully sorry. I wish I could. But um, you can't. It's not like that. But it is very real about the, um, the, the, the exigencies of Eliza's life, her poverty, her strength, and her capacity for survival. That's what it's about. And while you're bringing the microphone over there, I have a question for Maggie. I know that you... During one of our many interviews, you mentioned that you are now really getting kind of behind the scenes of movies. You're producing, you're optioning things. What are you working on next? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I optioned a book called Mating by Norman Rush, which, um, I mean, you know, it's the first thing I bought, and I, the, the thing I've been realizing about it is um, it will work as a movie if it's done in the most brilliant way, you know, which is not um, a great way to start. <laughs> but actually, I, I am, um, my mother is a screenwriter and she's adapting it for me. And um, we have a very interesting producer who's working on it with us. Like, it's actually happening, which is um, amazing to me. And uh, I have another book that I'm thinking about buying also. I mean, basically, I, you know, I read... The, the scripts that are out there and it's so unusual that I feel really excited and so I, I think um, I don't want to write and I don't want to direct but I am pretty good at producing mm. I feel like I've made enough tiny movies and had to drag them across the finish line getting the money and getting them into festivals and getting them bought and getting them distributed and even being a part of the cut and that I, I know something about it so I've surprised myself in, in noticing that I do know something about it and I'm um, and I like it. And so, um, yeah, I'm trying to uh, develop things that are interesting to me. Hi, ladies. Uh, I was just wondering, I actually have three questions, one for each of you. Uh, do you like them all at once? That's or? deeply democratic of you. I love it. <laughs> would you oh, like them God all bless at America. once or would you like them individually? Individually. Oh, I think individually. individually. We're, we're, it's late. Okay. First of all, <laughs> Susan, uh, is this the first type of movie that you've done with so many special effects? Um, well, it's the first movie, cinema movie I've made. I've come out of television before, but uh, I, I really developed a love of special effects when I was making Generation Kill, which is the HBO series I did with David Simon. There, the CGI there is pretty invisible um, in that we couldn't take, for instance, Cobra helicopters to Africa where we were filming. We, there wasn't a superhighway with the hull of the American um, Marine Force on it. And so we had to put in masses of stuff 
um, in the CG world. And, and I suddenly realized that that became very exciting for me. I realized your imagination could take you anywhere. And um, the joy of this film was that, you know, you could dream up, you could um, dream up a whole Busby Barclay se sequence and make that happen on the computer. You could make pigs fly. And um, so that was a lot of fun for me. Okay. Emma, is this a role that you want to continue to perform? Well, the way things are looking, I may have to, because the film industry, let's face it, is not exactly backing the kind of fab indies that I grew up on and in and Maggie does. And, you know, it's not, it's not a good time at the moment. Um, they're making action movies. They're making movies that they know will... But it, at the moment, it's extremely difficult. And we're very lucky because we made the first Nanny McPhee before um, the recession and before everything fell apart in all our industries, never mind film industry. So um, there's a possibility that we may be able to have enough money to make another one, and I think that it's an interesting enough character that I can find a really interesting story to go with it, because I would take her into modern times. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I would rather it... <laughs> I, I mean, I love making them, so I love writing them, and they're really challenging to me. So um, it's not like it's some kind of, right, okay, let's churn out another one. It, doesn't, it will never be like that for me. I can't work like that. I will, not, I will never work like that. But next, I think Emma should play a really sexy spy. that <laughs> <laughs> Mine's a large martini. Shaken, not stirred. Maggie, I left you for last because you're like one of my very favorite actresses of all time. Uh, was, was the English action, accent a challenge for you or is that something you're, you're very good at accents and different things like that? Um, well, I had a really good accent um, teacher who actually was, was my husband Peter's teacher on an education, which was, I think, just a coincidence. Yeah. Um, but it did kind of come naturally to me. Like, I am one of those annoying people that you go to England with them and then kind of talk a little like that, like by mistake, you know, and say, well, ring me. You know, like, I kind of like it. I don't know how I could do, I mean, I don't think I could do like a South African accent or an Australian, you know, it's not every accent. Well, it'd be harder. I kind of really like the Eng English accent. Um, when I was a little girl, I remember my parents took me to England and we, and we, uh, we hung out with these English kids, these other English kids, and I just pretended I was English the whole time. I was really embarrassed when I had to start talking in my American accents again. I like it. Actually, I'm going to speak in English accent in the next movie I'm doing. I totally forgot you weren't English after a while, and then I was really sad that the last day of filming that in between takes you started speaking as an American again and I, I thought oh my god she's American I totally <laughs> forgotten <laughs> and I knew it was all over at that point it was like a dream come true for me <laughs> <laughs> we've got another question for you right in front of you right here in the third row hi this question is for Emma uh, besides um, script writing have you been uh, writing anything else like a novel or lists <laughs> <laughs> lots of lists must clear out loft, that kind of thing. Um, no, no, I, I'm, I'm only writing screenplays at the moment. Although when I wrote a book of the nanny, the, the film, I, I was writing the diary, as I always do, and I, they had said, you know, would you like to write the story as a book? And I thought, well, I'll give it a go. And I was writing the diary every day on set and then writing bits of the story and then writing the diary in the same notebook because you have to understand this is a set which is like three feet of mud. <laughs> <laughs> 
her fault. Sorry. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was hell. Um, but great, obviously. And um, I just had this one notebook, and one day I started reading it back, and I thought, well, that's interesting to have the diary of the making of the story, which you then start to read. You read the story and the diary and the story and the diary. So that's what the book is, and that's... That that's just kind of happened, you know. Um, it's odd. People say, you know, well, would you like to write a novel? And I think, well, if I wanted to write a novel, I would surely have done that. Surely if you want to write a novel, you think, oh, well, I'll just do it. You can't be made to do something. Or at least I don't think you can. Um, but, yes, yeah, so screenplays, absolutely, there's a lot of that going on. We have time for two more questions, including one right over here in the back. Um, this is for Emma. Um, most the other two movies were both set in England, I think. So, um, since you said you're probably going to do another one, maybe are you going to do it in another location, or is it just? Gonna yeah, be I'm going to do it in New York. I just thought it would be very funny. I just could see her banging her stick, and all the taxi drivers suddenly having to apologise for things. Oh my God! I just apologized for something. I gotta go. I gotta, I gotta take some time off. You know, it's it must be something I ate. You know, I just thought it would be because you know English people are always going. Oh, I'm so sorry, even if it's their fault. You know, so sorry, 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 sorry. You know, if you bump into someone in the street and they've bumped into you really quite aggressively, you go, I'm so sorry. And it's just very. And I just thought there's that's just colour, but I thought there's something there. And if I made it modern then I could have her deal with all the modern machines and the fact that everyone spends their entire day going. We have time. Uh, one more question right here and all the way in the back. Thanks so much. Hi, ladies. Thank you for being here. I was wondering if Emma and Maggie could talk about how to approach talent without struggling through the whole agency world. What do you mean? You'll have to be more specific. Well, as a filmmaker, it just seems like it's really challenging to attach talent to a project. And it seems like agents never call you back. And it just seems very, very difficult for you know, a filmmaker to get honest feedback from the agencies and to find out if anyone's ever actually read it. So how do you navigate through that? That's a tick that's a very tricky one. I'm yeah, because I'm thinking first you know, I was gonna say, well, it's just ridiculous. It's one of those things. It's like if you have your money, then they are legally um, they they have to give you the offer if you come and make a money offer to somebody. Actually, I wonder if there's this other thing you can do where you I don't know if it actually get to you. I don't know. I don't know what you do. I think if you're making movies for the first time, you don't go to people who have agents. You, you find extremely talented people, of which there are many, who don't have agents and work with them and make a piece of work that you can then use as a calling card. I mean, that's what I would do, because there is so much talent, so, so, so much, you know, um, and, and it is a, a tricky thing. I mean, I think we're slightly different. We don't have that great buffer of lawyers and you know so many people um you know actually i think right now and i do think it's starting to change the thing about the independent movies independent movies are starting to be financeable again i can feel it like five million dollar movies are getting made 
they're getting made. That's in the past month. But I think that there are still so many really, really, really talented people around, actors and production designers and DPs who aren't working and would work for almost nothing and really want to work on something that's good. And so even if you know you start with people who are newer and, and uh, don't, uh, don't have agents that are keeping things from getting to them, I think there are still like a really lot, a lot of talented people who aren't working who are kind of dying, hungry to work right now. And you could really put something together that would be interesting and then you could show that to people who do have their agents and get the agents to, to get the script to them. Yeah, the thing to do is not is, is not to get caught in the trap of you have a script and you have to get a star in order to get it made. Because actually it just doesn't work like that. But you it do doesn't. have to get a star in order to get it made if you want to make it for any money. Yeah, absolutely. So if you just make you know pick up a that's what Jeff Bridges used to say to everybody when they would say I want to make a movie and what do I do he would say just like pick up a camera and make a movie and just keep making them and just keep making them and just keep making them and edit them on your computer and learn how to do that and just do it and do it and do it he said that to kind of the kids also but like I think it's really possible now like my husband was saying there's this camera that really really you can shoot it and it looks amazing like really it's just the same and you have you know? final cut my husband made his first documentary without anything i mean just a camera and his computer it took him months and months and a lot of swearing you know because final cuts quite i mean i just look at it and go oh, i'm gonna have to go and have a lie down and a martini now because it's just all this sort of oh, oh you know but if that's what you want to do it's all there it's all there well, thank you guys so much, you ladies, so much. And thank you. Thank you.